In this first week of Fast Frontiers Season 1, we have three great conversations to share, all of which are available now to download. In this episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Shashank Saxena, co-founder and CEO of Venly, where we will be discussing his work at Kroger Digital, founding his company Venly, his advice on simplifying your pitch, understanding if you're earning or buying revenue, and the advantages and challenges of being located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Please enjoy my conversation with Shashank Saxena. Super excited today to have Shashank Saxana, good friend of mine that I've known for a number of years. Originally when Shashank was at Kroger, where he was corporate strategy lead and was really our main contact uh, between Kroger, big company, and startups and technology and was really, really helpful in that role. Shashank uh, actually had a very fast career in terms of um, his progression at Kroger, having started in 2012 being part of the digital team, being promoted to serve as director of digital and e-commerce technologies, managing everything from the web and mobile, tablet, e-commerce, et cetera. And then in November, 2015, was promoted to senior director of partnerships and new business development before taking on the corporate strategy role. So Shashank, you were probably one of the youngest people on that team, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was, uh, I was definitely fortunate to get opportunities way before I was even ready to get those opportunities. So it was a lot of people that trusted me and believed in me and took the leap of faith and gave me a shot. And I'm really, really grateful for that. And thanks for having me on the show, Tim. Yeah, you got it. So much to talk about. But first, let's just, if we can talk about that Kroger experience, because people may or may not Kroger, Kroger owns a lot of different brands around the country and is very innovative and there's a lot more technology and the size of the technology team and the things that Kroger is doing in Cincinnati I better a surprise to a lot of people so can you just provide some of that background uh, just quick background on Kroger Kroger is the largest traditional supermarket retailer in the U.S. and overall if you look at retailer size I think they're the second largest after Walmart uh, so on the Fortune 500 list of companies, it's number 17, like I think $125 billion or so in terms of annual revenue. But uh, Kroger is known under different brands in different parts of the country, right? So people listening in on this, if you in Los Angeles, you live in and you say, hey, there's no Kroger here as well. If you, Ralph's, there are 200 plus Ralph's stores there, which is owned by Kroger. In Denver, it's known as King Supers. In the Carolinas, it's known as Harris Teeter. In Portland and Seattle, it's known as Fred Meyer. So Kroger is there throughout the country. It's just known under different brand names, unlike Walmart or Target, where Target is Target all throughout the country, right? But Kroger is essentially like 40, 50% larger than Target in terms of overall revenue annually. So that's how big it is, just to put things in perspective. So when Kroger started down the digital transformation journey, I was very fortunate to get an opportunity to be on the forefront of that to build out the whole digital team. So we started off with a handful of developers and it was hundreds of developers uh, very soon. Uh, got to kick off the e-commerce business, which today is one of the fastest growing areas of Kroger in the overall PNL. So and yeah, we grew, launched the first e-commerce app for Kroger. Yeah, and that grew very quickly. So as you know, I like to focus on hypergrowth and finding, finding entrepreneurs who've been through hypergrowth. And I think growth is the same, whether it's in a startup or in a big company. Even yeah. even in a large company, there are very few people in the company that participate in a high growth initiative like that. So can you just kind of sketch out what that growth was over time? Yeah, and uh, 
Again, I'm trying to be sensitive to what was disclosed publicly. So I think the last article that I read in the Cincinnati Business Journal said the last year the PNL closed at eight and a half billion in revenue, which is absolutely crazy given that five years ago, Kroger didn't have it was like a zero dollar revenue kind of a PNL when it came to like grocery e-commerce. So it's grown really, really quick in that regard. So I think in the first couple of years it hit a billion and then three billion or three and a half billion, I think was an announcement. Then they announced the five and a half billion and now eight and a half billion. And this year they're saying it's growing 100% and scheduled to double. So I'm guessing it's going to be like close to what a $15 billion PL this year, which is crazy given that six years ago this line of business didn't exist. Even within these big companies, things are moving quick and innovating. It really comes down to you need a different kind of a mindset to build this within a company. Uh, mainly because a lot of times uh, people who want long sustainable careers in the company will not want to stir the pot and disrupt things and move and shake things, right? And that's where it creates an opportunity for people from the outside with more of a disruptive mindset to come in and get the job done, uh, who don't necessarily are trying to optimize for the 30-year career with the company. They're trying to optimize for results rather than being less disruptive to the process and pleasing everyone, right? So those are the kind of things which really create opportunities for, quote unquote, the new word coming up is entrepreneurs, which is rather than being an entrepreneur, you're doing it, you're innovating and kind of leading your own startup within the construct of this big Fortune 500 company. And that's where the whole entrepreneurship concept is coming up. So I've had a couple of stints on that before I decided to finally take the leap without a parachute. Uh, and that's really the main difference. Right? When you're doing it in the big company, it's like you kind of have the parachute to like pull that. Uh, and when you when you go solo and you say, I'm going to start fresh from scratch, like you're not building anything in the construct of a big company, uh, you're kind of choosing to die without a parachute and hope you survive. So let's transition to Venley. So you're, you founded Venley in 2017, mm-hmm. just as I was starting the venture fund. And so my <laughs> biggest regret ever is that I didn't have the fund up and running in time to participate. Bowery led your seed round. Yeah. You've now gone on to raise nearly 60 million, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. From Battery and Hyde Park Ventures, Epic Ventures, and Insight Capital, mm-hmm. all in Cincinnati in a very short period of time. So, first of all, take us through the origin story of Venley. How did this idea come to you, come to you and you know, tell us more about what the company does? And I can take zero credit for the idea because it was all my co-founder Narayan where he actually engaged me to be an angel investor and because I was super happy with my job at Kroger, right? It's not that I was unhappy and looking or I went through a midlife crisis saying I need to quit and do my startup or something like that. I was doing really well and I was really, really happy with the job, the role, my comp, the people I worked with, everything about it was good. So when Narayan started reaching out to me to help shape his idea and be an angel investor in his seed round, uh, I started researching the space and essentially just a quick snippet on Venly and what we do. We are a vendor management system to help manage the entire non-employee workforce at a Fortune 500. So the simplest way to think of us is if you think about Workday, right? It's the HRIS system, like the uh, HCM platform to manage all your full-time employees. It's like a system of record. We are the Workday for the non-employee workforce. So people confuse us with one of these gig economy hiring platforms or on-demand staffing, temp labor staffing. We don't fill any of the roles. We don't do that. We are an ERP system of record for the Fortune 500 enterprise to know and manage your entire non-employee workforce. So we build the dull, boring, 
life cycles and workflows to manage behind the scenes in terms of the back office processes for the non-employee workforce. And there's a huge change in dynamics, right? So when Narayan reached out to me on the idea, uh, what I was surprised when I researched the space was the space is a duopoly where 90% of the market share is owned by two companies. One was started in 98, the other was started in 99. They're both older than when Y2K happened, to put things in perspective. And there were none of the other like emerging market players. And I was like, this has to be a massive market opportunity. So we sat down and we wrote a bunch of hypotheses. The first one was change in workforce dynamics, where 10, 15 years ago, less than 10% of the Fortune 500 workforce was non-employees. Today, it's almost 44% is non-employees, 56% is full-time employees, right? And very soon by 2022, analysts are saying it's going to be 50-50, where half the workforce is going to be non-employees, half is going to be full-time employees. So we were like, okay, that works as a tailwind in our favor. So that was one of the hypotheses that the trend will continue and it's going to be 50-50. The second hypothesis was uh, if Workday today has a $45 billion market cap and it's going to manage 50% of the workforce, which is full-time employees, can we build a company that has an $8 to $10 billion market cap as a publicly traded company that manages the other 50% of the workforce, which is the non-employees? We felt strongly about it because it passes the gut check, right? It's a good hypothesis to put down on paper and then validate with raising a seed round of capital. And then the third one was this whole wave of SaaS 2.0 technologies that you're seeing, right? Workday goes in and replaces PeopleSoft in the enterprise. Coupa goes in and replaces Ariba in the enterprise. Salesforce has replaced Siebel CRM. ServiceNow replaces Remedy. Like we're seeing this whole, there are 50 such examples where you're seeing this whole wave. So our thing was like, okay, can we come in and displace some of the legacy incumbents that are in this space? And we felt strongly about that thesis. So, I mean, we wrote these four or five bullet points as hypothesis, put it in a nice deck, picked up the phone and reached out to a few friends, including yourself, Tim, you've seen the, I mean, you were one of the first few to see the pitches on, on Wendley. And th- fortunately enough, we were trying to raise a one and a half million dollar seed round. And we closed very quickly a $3 million seed round. And that's how really Wendley got started. And from there on, I mean, there was no looking back. So we took the money, we started building the product, we went to market. Uh, the first couple of years, I personally sold all the deals. We didn't have any go-to-market motion, sales, marketing, none of that, right? And the product started getting traction and hitting the metrics that you want to see, uh, which then led to most of the big VC funds taking a look and getting curious and excited about the opportunity. And most of our rounds, like we didn't have to go through major like processes and open a deal room and all of that stuff. Like most of the rounds were essentially like verbally preempted by multiple funds. Uh, so we got very, very fortunate in that journey. But yeah, that's the Wendley story so far. Yeah, so two things there to, to to peel back the onion on a little bit. One is the market thesis piece. And the second is the myth about raising money from a place like Cincinnati, Ohio. So first, on the market, we talk a lot about this, look for this within Refinery at entrepreneurs and founders, really understanding that, that market, what's happening in the market, uh, where's the gap, where are the transitions happening, What's the mental kind of picture you can draw? And the more simple and compelling it is, the better. Mm -hmm. And what you just articulated very easily was this this huge opportunity that nobody really touched. And and once you see it, it becomes obvious, right? You didn't need to do a lot of research to figure out if you were going to be on the right track or not. Can you just, you know, kind of comment on that in terms of that insight and how investors responded to it and also how customers responded and validated that? Tim, that's 
actually accurate. And we honestly do. Uh, today, it's easy for me to say once I've raised money and I have money in the bank, right? People try to like mastermind architect these beautiful business plans. And then they go in front of the VCs and try to explain it. And it is so complicated that within the first seven minutes of your pitch, you've completely confused the hell out of the person who's sitting across from you on the table by trying to present this whole masterminded plan about how there's going to be a $100 billion company, right? And we've, by the way, made the same mistake, right? And in fact, you've seen some of our early pitches, so you know that better than anyone else. What I realized after seed and before A uh, is we need to simplify our story. Basically, half the, half the companies there would, could describe themselves in one sentence, right? We are the Uber for dog walking or we are the something for something, right? And I was like, okay, we can't describe ourselves in one sentence because I literally need 10 minutes to explain what I do as a business. And that's when we came up with this thing, like we are the workday for the non-employee workforce, right? We really simplified the message saying we are the ERP system of record for the other 50% of the workforce. Thankfully, at the same time, there were a bunch of media articles about, oh, Google today has more non-employees than full-time employees. Facebook has a shadow workforce. It's called a non-employee workforce. And TechCrunch started carrying all these articles, which then raised awareness about the non-employee workforce. At the same time, the Uber driver lawsuits were happening about misclassification. What we did was we, we shine light on it. And this is where simplifying the message into a simple bullet point list of four hypotheses, I think, really helped us uh, in the fundraising process. Because we did not go in with a grand big master plan of world domination and how you build a $100 billion company. It was really, really simple. So I think the two mistakes that founders make in the pitching process is either one, they pitch way too big a vision of a flywheel of too many things powering each other. Because it's like, okay, that's, you're a startup, right? You have to have focus. So I think that's where they fall apart. Or the other thing they fall apart is they show too small an opportunity. Because if you're a founder, and you've built a nice little $30 million business, great for you, but you've done nothing for the VC, right? Even the smallest funds are not investing in a company that whose potential outcome is $30 million, right? It's just not going to cut it. So I think this is where, these are the two traps entrepreneurs fall in, which are both exactly the opposite, but it's like either you're too aggressive in vision or you're just too mellow in your vision where you're not on the same page of what the VC is trying to do. Yeah, and then timing is everything. So the macro trends were in your favor, and then COVID-19 comes along and maybe causes a pause for a little bit, but probably starts accelerating that market movement even further. Correct. So if you look at the staffing business or the non-employee or temp labor space, like recessions historically have been a huge accelerator for the business. Because what happens is work doesn't stop getting done, right? Those e-commerce containers and Boxes still have to be picked, packed, and shipped in the distribution centers and warehouses. If you're a hospital, does nurses still have to show up that attempt nurses? All of these things, the work doesn't stop. But your appetite as a Fortune 500 company to hire more full-time employees does stop. And that's where the temp labor is a good gap in between where you can continue getting the work done, but you're still not adding, quote-unquote, people on your payrolls. Let's talk about geography. We often hear in markets like a Cincinnati yeah, outside Silicon Valley, oh, there's not enough capital. We can't raise capital. You obviously are a great example that that may not be true. So what challenges did you face? What would you tell other entrepreneurs that are that, that would like to emulate what you've been able to do? What they need to realize is in the seed stage, the bet is on them. Like any VC that's betting is betting on the person. It's all about, is this the person we want to fund or not? 
And I think personally, a lot of people have not gone ahead and tried to showcase their personal brand. And they get so focused on these complicated pitches where they try to show the strategy or the five-year out, 10-year out vision of the business where they miss the point. Like it's like, they're not funding the vision as much as they're funding you because the vision is going to evolve. In fact, initially when we started, we were trying to build like a marketplace of talent initially. And very soon we pivoted in the first few months itself. It was not like a formal pivot because I mean, it was along the lines of exactly what we were trying to accomplish. But the point is the vision will evolve and it'll change. And that's obvious, right? Any mature investor has seen this happen 10 times where the entrepreneur pitched something like, look at all the companies and their initial pitch decks, right? What they set out to build versus what it actually evolves into changes a lot during the, the process. So I think that's one thing where they need to realize that the bet is on them more than it is on the idea or the company or the space or anything else. Think of the space I'm in, like non-employees. It's not the sexiest of space. Like I'm not trying to solve for space travel or self-driving cars. Like no VC wakes up in the morning, says I'm going to solve for temp labor and staffing needs, right? That's just not how VCs operate. So initially, we were very fortunate where in the seed round, people were just willing to take the bet on us and the team. And then from there, again, the metrics start talking, right? Are you getting the right traction? How much have you invested in go-to-market? What kind of returns are you seeing? What levers are you pulling? So like last year, 2019, we had a great year because when I raised the Series A, what projections I put for year-end 2019, we hit that in Q2, right? So we were doing really well. And for all of 2019, we invested less than 1% of our overall revenue in marketing. Less than 1%. Hmm. And this is so far away from traditional, I would say, VC or startup wisdom, where it's like 25, 30, 40%, right? You see all this where it's like you're constantly building the go-to-market engine and investing. And that's what really got the Series B investors excited was like, man, like it's the whole nail it and scale it thing, right? Like you've nailed it in terms of product market fit that you're getting traction just by word of mouth without buying the big boots at conferences and doing account-based marketing and having a whole digital marketing strategy and stuff like that. So if you've nailed the product market fit, now it's ready to scale it. So the messaging has to evolve between seed because Cincinnati, coming back to answering your question, in Cincinnati, seed rounds are actually pretty common. Like companies get decent seed money. But if you see the drop-off rate between seed and A and A to B, like that's where I think our numbers really start to stumble. And what happens is the same vision that you pitched or the same deck that you pitched or the same story that you sold during seed when the bet was on you is not the same as series A and is not the same as series B. Traction and they're looking for validation of product market fit and can you scale this and is it the right time to add more fuel to the fire? That's a lot of what I saw when I was working with you and, and Citrifuse and helping other entrepreneurs raise money that graduation from seed to series A, you have to have the great idea. You have to have the right leaders, but you also have to have the metrics. Series A, you just have to have the data and it has to be the more capital efficient it is, the better. To your point about the marketing, right? Uh, you can't, it can't be just that you're piling money into it. You know, what lessons are there for entrepreneurs who are, they have a good idea. They have some decent market traction, but they are, you know, their customer acquisition costs, are still running kind of high. They're doing a lot of different marketing. Your experience is, hey, we experimented, experimented. We figured out product market fit quickly. Maybe the market timing was important. Talk a little bit more about that. If, if a company is spending 30, 40% revenue on marketing, what should they be doing at that stage? So there are three questions an entrepreneur should really focus and ask themselves. Not to answer to VCs, but just to know your own business well, right? The first one is, am I earning revenue or am I buying revenue? 
So if you're literally spending 40%, like keep in mind, right? A lot of these, like in marketing, half the dollars show and in return and half don't, and you never know which is working and what's not. So it's like, you have to know, like, are you just constantly buying growth? Because that's not sustainable, right? And at some point that bubble will pop. So you have to be really honest with yourself is, are you earning your revenue? Are you buying it? And because if you're buying it, then the cost, and this is where you see these numbers out of line, does it cost you $3 in expenses to buy that $1 in revenue? So that means you've not earned your revenue, you've kind of bought it. Because we think we've earned our revenue the hard way, where I've spent less than 1% of my revenue in marketing. So that's all hard-earned things, right? So I'm spending $1 to earn $100. Well, that's great because in the long term, that's when the lines cross and you get to profitability and unit economics start looking good and they work. So How quickly, how quickly did you get to that point? Did you have to experiment a lot or did that just happen naturally? So we are not still like profitable, but the thing is we can pull levers if we wanted to be, but the thing is you want to balance growth and profitability, right? I mean, similar to what Amazon has done in the long game. So we're playing the long game in terms of we want to be a really meaningful eight to $10 billion publicly traded company. So I'd be really foolish if I opted for profitability today at the cost of growth. So you kind of have to understand that. And that is going to be my second point is really good entrepreneurs. So one is the, are you buying revenue or earning it? The second point is, do you know how to control your levers between growth and profitability? The best entrepreneurs will try, will know exactly what are the two or three levers I can pull in a bad environment to turn my business upside down and make sure my unit economics get back in line. Which means you also know that intentionally, like you're investing in certain growth levers and in the, in the time of crisis, you can pull back on those levers to then make sure you're not going to burn out of runway. And that is absolutely critical is knowing what levers you have to pull at your discretion. Again, that's why I said all the three questions are more intrinsic for an entrepreneur just to understand their business, right? So you need to know that lever. The third thing that this comes into is about uh, the, the journey of evolution, right? So if you think about evolution in terms of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Because series A versus B versus C, like each of these, you are essentially going through the journey of evolution, right? And this is where your bigger master plan comes into play, where if you are becoming a market leader in a certain product category, is your goal to grow that category? Or get, like in the US, is your expansion going to come by growing, growing geographically? So you're going to launch UK and Australia and all these other markets. Is it going to come based on diversifying into two or three other products? Like, is that where the growth is going to come from? Or is the growth going to come from certain other levers, right? So, and this is why you'll see a lot of companies, they see this early wave of growth and then it flattens. Why? Because they didn't understand where the next wave of growth is going to come from. So it's great for the seed investor because there was huge markups for the series A and B. It's okay for the series A investor. The series B investor got screwed because they're probably going to get a 1x or 2x on their return because the company's plateauing and flatlining and it's not going to be the exit that they all hoped for when they did the deal, right? So this is where, like, I think there's a learning opportunity to understand, like, where are these levers going to come from and what is your growth strategy going forward? Because what got you here won't get you there. And have you figured out then what is going to get you there? And those are great points. Being in Cincinnati and you have other offices, you have a Toronto office, right? Any other offices at this point? Uh, we just made our first UK hire. So we will be expanding in the UK now due to COVID. Uh, we're slow playing that, but that, that's coming up next. And at some point, Australia later this year. 
do you view being in Cincinnati? Is that a disadvantage or an advantage? I'm neutral in a lot of ways. And I'll go back to Tim. I'll, I'll share the Centrifuge founding story, right? And you know this because you've told me this. I've learned this from you. Uh, the McKinsey study that was published in terms of like, okay, what are the region's strengths and weaknesses? And one of the things they put in was the strength was like, okay, access to these big companies and there's P&G and Kroger and like all these companies. Well, the also unfortunate reality is like while they provide capital to a great organization like Centrifuge, which is where we were incubated. So we are extremely grateful. Like we sat in those hallways for over a year trying to figure out what we want to do and go about our business. Right. So we are extremely fortunate. By no means am I trying to be ungrateful for because the, the building's great. The facility is great. Access to capital is great. Access to funds is great. Sarah does a great job of introducing you to VCs. All of that stuff's great. What? The opportunity is, and this is where we really need to go back and look at the thesis around what McKinsey put together is like, okay, these big companies can help small companies partner and scale and grow. And it's like, give me one example of a startup in Cincinnati that a PNG and Kroger have helped quote unquote build. All our traction and most of our customers are outside the area. That is one of the hypotheses in the McKinsey study, which I really challenge is like, is it really that big an asset to have these big companies around here? Because they don't do much for the startup community. In fact, I would say I've seen a lot more entrepreneurs hope, wait, pray, and see their businesses die on the wine, waiting for the opportunity to actually materialize with one of these local big companies. Yeah, so, actually, when I did share this, I thought I was going to have this great connection with Procter & Gamble because it was early days you know, of ad tech. And I had every major digital advertiser in the world as a customer, except for Procter & Gamble, where I started, yeah. the, you know, started the company. The opportunity, and, and I think when early days of Centrifuge, you know, I think those backers, and as you said, we're very grateful that they've done this. You and I wouldn't know each other if it weren't for that. But their assumption is that the startups needed capital. And I would always, if I had a chance, correct them and say, no, startups need customers. Yep. If you get customers, you can get ca getting capital is easy. Yep. I, I need logos. I need customers using it. And so I think there is a huge opportunity still like you said, hasn't, we don't really have great examples of yet where companies and the companies probably need to be further. They're not just seed stage, right? But you get like series A stage and some of these big companies in the region say, hey, we want to fully embrace Venley or whoever it is. Well, that can have a huge impact, right? Yeah. In terms of raising the next round, signaling to the market, to other customers, driving revenue, et cetera. And it's, it's been de-risked at that point. How about what, what's your experience been in terms of hiring talent? Personally, I had an advantage because when I was at Kroger, there were hundreds of software developers that used to report up through my organization. So I already had access to some of the best talent. And that was essentially what really kept me in Cincinnati was the fact that literally my first 20, 30, 40 developers, I could hire without even worrying about job postings and interviewing and all of those things. Of course, we did that. But the thing is, like, you know who's good and who's not because it's a local community. It's a tight-knit community. And most of the software developers have worked with each other at the same five big companies around here, right? It was really, really easy for me compared to on the West Coast. I would be, pay is not that much different at this point because we pay really well. Like, we pay healthy six-figure salaries. Uh, so on the West Coast, I probably would pay 10, 20% more. But retention and those kind of things become an issue and also acquisition, right? So it's like, Every time you're posting a job and you're praying that the right people see it and then they are interested in your company and you have to sell the vision and stuff like that. Whereas here, I, again, as I said, the personal brand was strong where people trusted me in the early days, not knowing what Benly is about, not knowing what a VMS is, not knowing what we are to build. But they were like, listen, if you're doing it, I trust you enough to then 
come ahead and join you for the journey, right? So most of the key people that we hired in the leadership team earlier on, it's not that they were fascinated by the space of the problem we are solving. It's just they wanted to be partners in the journey. And this is where the strength of relationships shows is who's going to stand by you in your journey, irrespective of what's the product you're working on. Yeah, it's it seems like it'll be a strategic advantage. So anybody building a startup yeah, outside Silicon Valley in, in, in a city or a region like Cincinnati or Ohio yep. or the Midwest, there's an advantage because of the, as you said, the, the retention. And those people are there. It's, it's always interesting. I think when people ask me, they say, well, I need to, I can't hire people for my company. I was like, well, how many are you trying to hire? And if they're complaining to me, they're trying to hire one. Yeah. And it's very different hiring one versus hiring 10. Yep. Right. If you have the, because because people are, you know, they do have different levels of risk tolerance, right? Yeah. And when people know, oh, Venley's hiring, we know Shashank, we know what they're doing. And it's it's not just me, but it's me and my friends and others are going. There's some Correct. safety in numbers, right? Yep. That's right. So it's and easier exactly to hire 10 than it is to hire one. And Tim, this is no different. I mean, we've seen so many other ecosystems evolve, right? So if you look at the Seattle story, when Microsoft was first there and everything was in Silicon Valley back then, uh, and then on the backs of Microsoft, Amazon was built there. So it takes like a couple of really big successful ones to become like the anchor tenants. This is no different than building a real estate strip mall where if Kroger is an anchor tenant, like eight others will want to lease this place, right? So it's the same concept of anchor tenant of real estate that applies to tech startups as well. So for Seattle, like Microsoft and others did that. Uh, same thing for Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City has had its fair share of like good big exits right now. Austin is doing really well. Austin's anchor tenants were basically Silicon Valley tenants opening a second center there. So for them, it wasn't like startups as much as it was uh, some of the, the big tech companies. Uh, same thing, I think, in Cincinnati, where if you have two or three that go to IPO and become multi-billion dollar companies, they kind of play the role of an anchor for then the ecosystem to then build around it, right? So I think that concept is going to apply uh, at some point. We just need the top two or three success stories of billion dollar plus exits or like multi-billion dollar publicly traded companies being formed to then anchor the whole ecosystem. Yeah, and so the message to city leaders that want to support this and see this kind of activity is don't focus on 300 startups. Focus on the three companies that already have market traction, that have raised some money and figure out how to make those three companies 10 times more successful. Yeah. It's de-risked and a much higher chance of success. Correct. Yeah. And then this is about, again, picking your winners and doubling down on those bets. So, yeah. Yeah. And they're pretty clear. Again, yeah. they're pretty clear. There, there are only a handful of companies in this market that have achieved the, the growth and the success or gotten through those milestones as you have. There, there, yeah. aren't, there aren't that many. And so it's not hard to figure out who it is. And there are also two things which I hear as concerns being brought up every time. It's never been a deal breaker, but these are concerns and I'll address this, right? Because Cincinnati finding good devs is, I would say, relatively easy because there are a lot of really good software developers here. But the two things I always hear is, have they done it before and scaled? And my whole point is, listen, I'm not building Google here because Google's problems are very, very different, right? You need the Stanford PhD pipeline to solve Google's problems or Facebook scale problems. In the enterprise SaaS world, it's an application business. You're not going to have a billion active concurrent users on your platform, right? So I'm not looking to solve for a billion active users. But if you're building that kind of a business, then sure, you need, you need to be in Silicon Valley. But for a vast majority of application-based businesses, you really don't. So that's one concern. And in fact, there's proof there to Duo Security out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, 
did a great job there. Exact target in Indianapolis. Indianapolis is not that different as compared to Cincinnati. Second biggest Salesforce office was in Indianapolis, right? They had three and a half thousand employees there. So the point is if Salesforce can find three and a half thousand employees in Indianapolis, which is very similar to Cincinnati, why can't you do it in Cincinnati? So the point is like that one, I'll dispel that myth because for most application-based businesses, you really don't need a kind of the Google and Facebook kind of engineering talent. Uh, your regular good, solid software developers know how to build and scale these applications. And let's be honest, a lot of people that work with me have built and scaled e-commerce applications for 100 billion of revenue scale, right? Which is Kroger, which is where most of us came from. So it's like they know how to scale it to 100 billion. And after we get to that point, then I'll figure out the rest. I'll, I'll just be happy to get to that point because mission is accomplished once you're at that scale. So that's one thing. The second thing is go to market. That's where I think Cincinnati gets dinged a lot. And I get questioned a lot. Is there the right go to market talent? So think of Salt Lake City, Utah, right? A lot of good like SaaS sales closers and BD teams that can just run the motion around sales in that market. Cincinnati doesn't have that. But my counter is always, why should sales be run in Cincinnati, right? I don't need sales to be done in Cincinnati. Like what, what's here? Like engineering and product can be here, but for sales, I can have distributed sales team, West Coast, East Coast, Mid Midwest, Texas, all of that stuff, which is exactly how we've gone about doing it. So these are the two things that often come up as constraints, both of which I don't think are constraints that apply to, I would say, 80, 90% of the businesses, unless you're in that one certain category, where trying to build and scale to a certain way or in a certain domain where you really need to be out there. This has been awesome. You, I love you. You're, you're one of my favorite people in town. I Thank hope you. you have huge, huge success with Venley because I think there's uh, not only because I want that success for you and your team, but also there's so much people can learn from you and you're, you're doing a great job modeling what it means to be a fast frontier pioneer, my friend. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me on the show and thanks for the opportunity to chat. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, www.fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with others and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Again, in this first week of Fast Frontiers Season 1, we have three great conversations to share. You can listen to them all right now. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Tim Galeri, Managing Director of Sierra Ventures. Sierra Ventures.